Again, it's good to have you with us today, and I invite you to take your Bible, please, today. And if you'll turn to uh, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is towards the back end of the New Testament, so towards the back end of the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one with you, you'll notice there's one in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't own one, take it home as our gift to you. I'd be really glad if you could do that, please. For those of you unfamiliar with Scripture, the, um, you're using a pew Bible, you can find the how to find Hebrews are on the... The page numbers are on the screen behind me, all right? I want to begin our time together by reading from my prayer journal. I tend to write in a prayer journal about every four or five times a week, I suppose, um, and just keep track of what I'm praying before God. And it acts, I can go back and look at that and I can say, oh, okay, I remember that period in my life. Or, and usually I'll put down where I was, what was, you know, a little bit of, it's not a diary, but... It can act that way in some ways. And so I want to take you back to a journal entry of March 11th, 2014, three months ago. Leslie and I spent the night that night in Tiberias, Israel, uh, which is on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee in Israel. And this is what I wrote about that day. Earlier today, we went up through the market of Nazareth and came to a simple structure known as the Synagogue Church. The church or the synagogue where they say that Jesus taught and read from the book of Isaiah, proclaiming himself as anointed to preach to the poor and needy. If this was the spot, then certainly the setting is appropriate. There is no ordinateness, just stark, clean, white walls. Simple lives, earth, rocks, stone. It all seems appropriate for Jesus as compared to the -the over-the-top sights that we've seen to this point. And here's my prayer. Lord, in all of our sophistication of contemporary life, both personally and at First Christian, help me to keep the message simple. That moment was one of two deeply, profoundly, if you will, emotional moments that I experienced while we were in Israel. I've told you before, and I'll bring it up again yet later today, about my discovery of thought and prayer while we were at the Western Wall. That was number one, and this was the second place at the synagogue church. And as we were standing there, you can see there are just benches that line the walls. And I had to walk away kind of down to where, as you see that light coming up on the right-hand side, I kind of walked down the room to there just to be a moment by myself to kind of compose myself. Because I realized again that as one who is ordained, if you will, to vocational ministry, then the passage that Jesus had read from Isaiah had some applications in my life. Now, I'm not Jesus, and all of you know that. But I am ordained to officially, if you will, got it on a piece of paper. I'm ordained to officially carry on his ministry. And this is what his ministry was. This is what he read when he stood in that room. I said, the spirit of the Lord, of the sovereign Lord, is on me because he has anointed me to to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness, pardon me, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve. Instead of grieving, you get a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And if you know that story from when Jesus read from Isaiah, Isaiah was written 600 or so years prior to when he read from it. And he reads it, he folds, he rolls up the the scroll, and he sits down, and it says that every eye was on him. 
And he didn't say anything. He just said, this is who I am, just by reading it. So as I'm in that room back at the synagogue church, that's kind of all going through my head, and I'm going, okay, if this is where he read that scroll, then what is my responsibility to do that today? And for that matter, all of us who say, if you're in this room and you say that you walk with Christ, then frankly, regardless of your ordination status, you are responsible to carry out that ministry because we are the hands and feet of, hands and feet of Jesus. And today's passage in Hebrews points it out quite clearly, if you'll read with me. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us, that's his body, so by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the high, let me slow up, I'll slow down, okay? Pardon me. Let me start again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So what we're doing today with this passage is concluding this sermon series that we've been on and working with over the last few weeks. It was initiated by that trip that Leslie and I took to Israel. And uh, for those who've been with us each week, give me the indulgence, if you will, to bring our guests today up to speed. Leslie and I were there for a month. We weren't there as part of a tour group throughout the month of March. But we went there to, simply to discover the nation as if you could just be there. And we did that. We had a small apartment just outside the old city of Jerusalem. And we were able to go where we had a rental car and we could go wherever we wanted for that month. We discovered a lot of things, including uh, this special moment at the Western Wall. That photograph on the screen behind me is one I took. And um, in the first few days we were there, we went to the Western Wall in the inner city of, in the inner old city of Jerusalem, and we went and prayed. We put our hands against those stones that are some 3,000 years old. The wall is 167 feet long. It's a 65 feet to the top. And each week I've brought to the congregation this understanding that Standing there that first day at the Western Wall, and we visited there many times to pray, was stunned by this recollection and this understanding that for the Jewish people, for the Judaism, it's the most holy site because it's the closest that they have to where the Holy of Holies used to be, where the presence of God used to be, namely 65 feet up and a few feet over was where the temple of God stood, built by King Solomon 3,000 years ago. I remember standing there at that wall for the first time, putting things inside in the wall like we did a few weeks ago, and thinking, you know what? The presence of God is not just stuck up there anymore. But now, because of what Matthew 27 tells us, the presence of God is open to all people. Because there used to be a curtain that separated the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, from the nation. 
But when Jesus died, we even sang about it. The curtain torn in two. We sang that in that, in that song we sang while we were praying. The curtain was split in two. And now God's presence is available to all. Namely, his Holy Spirit. We all have access to it. And throughout the last few weeks, we've been examining the, the implications of what all that means. For example, we know we have leadership and guidance. And we looked at that when we talked about, remember the pot-bellied pig by the name of Ziffel? Remember that? We talked about how we can experience grace. And I talked to you at that point about Shrek, the sheep that hid away for six years and grew way too heavy. We talked about restoration and refreshing of our souls and how we have access to the forgiveness of sins followed by a repentant lifestyle. And it all happens because of Jesus' blood. And that whole story last week I pointed out is told on top of the Temple Mount, 65 feet up and a few feet over by that, by that um, stone that's on the mosque wall of the city of, uh, that's there on top of the Temple Mount where the, where the Jewish temple used to be. And the whole story of the gospel is told in that stone right there. So we've kind of done a whole lot of things, but today I want to conclude the whole series by saying, okay, in light of all of this, in light of all we've learned, what can we say that we are to do? Hebrews 10 gives us the understanding of what the full impact of our responsibilities are, given that the curtain temple has torn in two. Look again at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Notice it's a conditional statement. It's therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have, in other words, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and it goes on from there. It's, it's a therefore, since, it's, in other words, it's a conditional statement. Since we can do this, since we can enter into God's presence, then something else follows. If we couldn't enter the presence of God, then what follows in the rest of Hebrews chapter 10 doesn't apply to us. If you can't get access to the presence of God, then don't worry about what Hebrews 10 says. But since through the blood of Jesus, we, since we have access through that blood of Jesus, then we have responsibilities that come out of it. And Hebrews 10 here gives us the applications of what we are to do in light of the fact of access to the presence of God. And I want you to notice also that this whole, this whole passage is a we passage. It's an us passage. It's about us as followers of Jesus Christ. Notice how many times throughout the passage there are implications for a group of people. We have confidence, it says in verse 19. In verse 20, that this access is opened up for all of us. We have in verse 21, we have a great high priest, 22 through 23, 24, and 25. It's let us do something. This passage isn't about other people. It's written for those who have access to God's presence through Jesus' work on the cross. In other words, if you're here today, I would suspect most of us in the room today are here as followers of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today saying, I belong to Jesus Christ, I, I go where he calls me to go, I, I live my life the way in which he wants me to live, then this, con this conditional statement and passage is for you. It applies to me. It applies to you. Therefore, since we, in light of what we have, what are our responsibilities? What should we do? Well, just go through the passage with me and you'll catch a hold very quickly what it means. First of all, it says we should draw near to God in forgiveness. Verse 21. Since we have a great priest over the house of God. Verse 22. What do we do? Here's the condition. Since we have this, what do we do? Verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. In other words, 
We come into the presence of God with full forgiveness because of the work of Jesus Christ. That forgiveness is already in play. And then as we come in, as we come close, then that forgiveness, that clear conscience is demonstrated in a number of actions. And verse 23 gives us the beginning of them. Since we have all this, he says, let us, what's the, what's the language there? Let us, do you read it? Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. What are we supposed to do? We are to hold on to whatever we are professing. We're, hold, we're to hold on to that hope. And what do we profess? We profess that Jesus' blood has given us access to the presence of God. And that ability to experience of God cannot be some nonchalant event or opportunity. It costs Jesus' life for us to have access and for us to have this encounter with God. And we can't treat it back with some, treat it with some sort of back and forth indifferent approach in any way. Not at all. Let me explain it this way. A few weeks ago, while in Israel, Leslie and I were on top of Mount Bentel. It's one of the highest peaks within Israel. It's, on the north, it's in the northern part of Israel in the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights were um, a large area of Israel that Israel managed to take from the Syrians during the 1967 Six-Day War. From Mount Bentel, you can look over the northern side of the, of the mountain there, and you can see Syria down below. And that valley down below, about three miles away from where we were standing, you could see that day places where um, the civil war within Syria, has the, where the front has gone back and forth. You're aware, perhaps, that that war has been going on there for some three years now. And throughout those three years, you could, we could see, well, at one point the war was down here, then the war was over. There are ruts in the road that are from it all. And with each movement of that front, lives were lost when it was over here. Lives were lost when it was over here. And it carries on today, back and forth, with no real, very little, if you will, to show to date overall for that warfare. And I'm reminded of this, our back and forth, our nonchalance, our indifference, our indifference, if you will, to Jesus' blood and sort of any subsequent laissez-faire awareness of God's, pre God's presence in our lives. If we take it with that kind of approach, isn't that offensive to God? We must hold on to what God has given us with a tight-fisted grab, a grip. He says, let us take a hold of what God has given us, the hope we profess. How tightly are you holding on to the presence of God? I'm reminded of the story of Jacob in the Old Testament in this regard. Do you remember that story? One of the early patriarchs of the nation of Israel. We read this story that he's out in a field sleeping sort of by himself. We get the sense he's out there by himself somewhere or other. And um, an angel or God or some sort of man appears. We don't know exactly. Scripture kind of leaves it real vague. But we're quite aware that he has this encounter with this angel, if you will. And they get into a wrestling match as if they're WWF match that's going to fight all night long. And as the daylight is beginning to approach... This angel, this man, sees that Jacob just won't let go. And so in an effort to kind of win the fight, the angel dislocates Jacob's hip. And he says, let me go. It's almost morning as if he can't be seen during the daylight. And Jacob says, I won't let go until you bless me. And he's hanging on. And with that, the angel says, I bless you. And he changes Jacob's name 
from Jacob to Israel, and he becomes the father of the Jewish nation. I want that kind of tight grip on the hem of God's presence. I won't let go, God. This is the hope. This is the faith I profess. Jesus Christ died for me, and I'm hanging on to that. I will not let go of it. Now, that's a great approach. It's a great, great statement to make, but how do you do that? Well, Hebrews tells us how. Read with me. Verse 23 again. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. In verse 24, let us consider, again, this is all since we've got access, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Apparently, if we're going to hold on to this hope, if we're going to hold on to the presence of God, then we are to be engaged in actions of love and good deeds. And I want to ask you straight up, have you made any plans for that yet? I mean, if you're going to hold on to God's presence in your life with this tight-fisted grip, then apparently that should be demonstrated, that grip should be demonstrated by the way in which you are involved in care for other people. What are your plans specifically? Surely you don't just have sort of nonchalant plans that, well, if, it, if I get to help somebody, fair enough. If I don't, okay, it's all right. I'll just, I'm living my life, and if an opportunity comes along, I'll take it. No. Apparently, since we have access to God, we're supposed to be involved in love and good deeds. What are your plans? What are your specific plans? Because when I think about it, we have seen throughout the past few weeks these very specific plans about how the high priest was to approach God's presence with extreme caution. We examined stories last week of people who died as a result of poor planning. And that picture of proper planning is demonstrated in what God expected and how the high priest was to approach his presence and how it was, you, you, until the curtain was torn in two, it was an exact science uh, and it was an exact process, a detailed plan. And you can, frankly, you can even see that in the instructions given to the people of Israel regarding the furnishings that were supposed to be inside the holy of holy place. It was very, very exact. Think about the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the box that was to be built to hold the Ten Commandments and other things. Maybe you know about this. Certain size, supposed to be made of acacia wood. And once they had it built of acacia wood, they were to cover the whole thing in gold, inside and out. And then once they did that, they were to attach rings to the side of the box with a lovely decorative mold around the top. And the rings on the side were to hold poles in which, so that the box could be carried. And those poles were to be made of acacia wood as well. And then the poles were to be put through the rings, and they were to stay in the rings. It wasn't like we get to carry the box, then we pull the poles. No, the, God said, keep the poles in there. As a matter of fact, there are places in Scripture where, you, where there's talk about the poles sticking out a little bit, pushing the curtain a little bit. And then they were to cover the top of it with a whole um, gold top that became known as the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat, there were two cherubim on either end of the box. And those cherubim had wings that came up and they would, they would almost touch, kind of covering the whole mercy seat. And Scripture says that when the presence of God came down out of heaven and the cloud came into the Holy of Holies, that God himself would sit there on that mercy seat underneath the wings of those angels. The instructions for its construction were extremely precise. 
And in that light then, from the perspective of our access to a very precise and powerful presence of God, let me ask you, how are you doing with some precise actions of love and good deeds? Now, I want to remind you, the love and good deeds, they don't give you access to God's presence. Don't get me wrong in that. God's, God's gift to us and Jesus' blood gives us access to the presence of God. However, once we have that access, if you're going to grip the presence of God and never let go, then in conversation with God, while covered by the wings of angels, what will you do to make your life better for someone else? What are you going to do this week? Are you just kind of wander through the week, week and say, well, I hope I get to do something nice? No. Since we have access to this precise, powerful presence of God, what plans do you have in place? Leave from here today with, I'm going to do something different for somebody else this week. If you need help with that, check out the Connect wall in the lobby. The reason that wall is there is so that you can leave from here saying, I've got a piece of paper and an email address. You can even email the leader of that ministry as you leave here today and say, I've got a way to make a difference in somebody's life this week. You can step into new behavior even as you leave here today. Because look again at what Scripture calls us to do in this conditional passage that since we have access to God's presence, we read in verse 24, let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Verse 25, not giving up meeting, as, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Apparently, one aspect of demonstrating what it means to experience God's presence involves hanging out together and in doing so, providing encouragement to one another. And if there were ever a list of reasons for a church to gather, certainly this would make the list. Encouraging one another, hanging out together, and by doing so, telling each other's stories and being involved in the stories of each other's lives. See, each person who walks with Christ has got to follow this injunction of Scripture. And we've got to walk it and follow it in ways that are unique to us, if you will, in ways that are unique to our own personal spiritual DNA, our own personal life stories, and the individual ways in which God has worked in our lives. And we're supposed to use those stories, that DNA, for the sake of others and for encouragement for others. I was reading this week about the DNA of twins, identical twins, as a matter of fact. And many of you know, I would suspect, that Identical twins have identical DNA strands. And I began to think, well, just out of the blue this week as I was kind of working on this, sort of thing, what would ever happen if a pair of identical male twins married a pair of identical female twins? I was unaware that this is quite a common occurrence, that these twin conventions take place around the country and they meet each other and they go, oh, and they end up identical twins marry identical twins. Okay, that's great. But then this thought occurred to me. Okay, if that's the case, what happens to the children? How are the children related? Because you've got, well, without getting into the intimate details, basically you've just got two sets of DNA mixing together with four different people. That's kind of crazy stuff, right? And, and how are they related? Because in essence, apparently, while the children would be cousins by the law, when it comes to their DNA, they're actually like all brothers and sisters. 
Is that weird? Can you get your mind around that? Okay. So you could go, let me introduce you to my cousin Sam, who is really my brother. Oh. Well, let me introduce you to my brother Sam, who is really my cousin. And they're going, who's marrying who here? It's all crazy stuff. Now, there's one fascinating aspect about identical twins, though. In that while they have identical DNA strands, there's one aspect about their physical characteristics in which they will always be different. Any idea what that might be? Fingerprints. Identical twins have different fingerprints, which doesn't make sense at first glance, right? You go, well, why don't, if their, if their DNA strand is exactly alike, how come that DNA doesn't cause the patterns on their fingerprints to be exactly alike? Here's why they're different. They will have different fingerprints because fingerprints are established by the way in which children in utero rub their hands along the lining of their mother's embryonic sac. Isn't that weird? Do you hear that again? And you think about two twins in the womb. They're not going to rub their fingers along mom's sack. It's weird language, isn't it? And <laughs> I didn't know that till this week. And Fred, who's one of the staff members, he and I were chatting about this. And he goes, Wayne, that's really odd. It's odd that you know that. It's odd in some fascinating, interesting, but thoroughly creepy way that you know that. But here's the implication for us today. Each of us, we come into the presence of God, rubbing our hands against the contours and ridges of the stories and lives that we bring with us. And our spiritual fingerprints are thus created individually separate, strikingly fascinating all to God's glory. And your story, your spiritual fingerprints are needed by others as you get involved in acts of love and good deeds and encouragement. There's no one else like you. And since we have confidence, since, therefore, since we have confidence to enter into the most holy place, therefore we have some responsibilities. We have responsibilities to provide unique life encouragements to each other. And we're going to do it with some passion. Which brings me all the way to the close, then, of this whole series. And some of you are going, great, enough of the Israel stuff. But just one more story, okay? Because you'll recall that when we started this series six weeks ago, as Les and I came home, um, impacted particularly by that moment at the bottom of the Western Wall, that I told you of the climb that Leslie and I made up Masada Mountain in the first week we were in Israel. The mountain has, the top of the mountain is full of ruins. Um, It's a palace built by Herod during the time of Jesus. And if I can just briefly remind you of the story, it's 1,300 feet up from the base of the mountain up what I was told was the hill to the top of the mountain. The Dead Sea is just a few miles away. We got there. We're on the eastern side. The picture you see there is from the eastern side. It was a warm day, about 75 degrees, and the woman at the ticket booth, I said, how do we get up to the top? You say, you've got two ways. You can take the gondola up or you can walk. And how much is the gondola? It turned out to be about US $10. And what's the process of walking? Oh, people do it every day. 45 minutes, you got it made. And so you recall that I thought we could save ourselves 20 bucks and thought we'd walk up. 
And I realized as soon as we got to the bottom of the cliff and began that incline, it wasn't a hill, it was a cliff. And a few minutes in, I thought, that woman lied. That woman lied. She's, she lied through her teeth. She's back in the booth smiling at just another sucker who she got to go up the cliff, okay? And it was just maddening because about every, every 10 minutes, that gondola would go over our heads. And I'm thinking, for 20 bucks, we could be on that. All right, fair enough. That was the story that we experienced. But the real story is what's on top of the mountain. Herod's palace up there is uh, some 2,000 feet long, 650 feet wide. It's a massive structure. Until, and, and, um, until recent years, but, and, and particularly in the years immediately after the 1967 Six-Day War, the Israeli army used Masada Mountain. And actually that footage you're seeing is from that period of time just at the end of the 67 war. Uh, what would happen is that soldiers would be taken to the base of Masada and they would then go from the base up to the top of the, up to the, top of the mountain. And as they were about to graduate from boot camp, the graduation from boot camp would be on top of the mountain, Masada Mountain. And at that point, they would be sworn into the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force Army. Here's why in those years that those recruits were taken there to be sworn in. Got to go back a lot of years into the time in the few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. At that point in Israel, in Israel history, in Israel's history, there were um, a number of revolts against the Roman Empire. And different Jewish groups would rise up and the Romans would squelch them and kill a few people and the Jews would be subservient again. And then they'd come up again and they'd go down. Well, it got so bad that by 70 AD, the Romans had had enough of it. And they actually burned Jerusalem to the ground. And when you read stories in Scripture about Jesus being at the temple in Jerusalem, at that point the temple was burned to the ground and all that is left of that temple is what we have at the Western Wall where Jews go to pray right now. It's the closest they have to the temple. The temple has never been rebuilt. And as we've talked last week, uh, the people of Islam have now built a mosque where the temple used to be. When the burning took place in 70 A.D., a group of Jewish people left Jerusalem and managed to get to Masada where they barricaded themselves inside that palace. The Romans held siege to the, to the mountain for a number of years. They eventually, on the east side of the mountain, on the other side of the mountain, um, they managed to build a ramp. And the ramp, you can imagine how much dirt this took to get from 1,300 feet they got to within 225 feet of the top with just a dirt ramp. And then they took battering rams that went like this, and they literally battered against the mountain, against the fortress, until they made their way in, and they were able to take the mountain again from the Jews. But when they got there, they discovered a silent but gruesome scene. The Jews, 960 of them, were, were all dead. It was a mass suicide. And whether or not you want to hear that, but that's really what happened, whether or not we think it's a good idea. They committed suicide together so that they would not be taken into Roman slavery. And army recruits are taken there to be reminded of their strong Jewish heritage and that never again will the people of Israel be taken into slavery. Fascinating. You can get the connection, right? It's a powerful statement about slavery. And they went to great lengths of their own lives to avoid it. 
And yet here we are with full access to the presence of God. And yet we, we go to very little lengths to avoid the slavery of, sins, of sinful apathy or sinful indifference to what God has made available to us, his presence. And Jesus didn't die for your apathy, friends. He, di- he didn't die so that we would be slaves to indifference, but so that we would be transformed men and women and young people, transformed one step at a time into his image, into his character. And we now have access to God's presence. And divine leadership is available to us moment by moment. And since, as the scriptures say, Therefore, since all that has been given to us, let's draw near, let's step in, let's step closer to God, to each other, and be used by God in each other's lives this week and in the lives of the people we come in contact with this week. Make some plans. Get engaged. Be thankful for the access to God's presence. Let's pray together. God, at the end of this discussion that's gone on for weeks now about the presence of God, we want to thank you. And we certainly don't want to be indifferent to the work that Jesus did on our behalf. Enable us, O oh God, to step into the responsibilities of being followers of Jesus Christ and to step into those responsibilities this week with some new passion, never with laissez-faire, but some new passion that says, we will do what you call us to do. And Lord, we're going to walk from this place striving to be used by you, not only in the lives of our family, but in the lives of even people we don't know. We're going to act differently this week. We're not only going to draw near to you, but we are going to be involved in acts of love and good deeds and in the process encourage other people. Give us new hope and new detailed plans for that, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.